This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. The title of this talk is Why You Can't Reverse Engineer a Human Being, The Metaphysics of the Soul. Practice usually precedes theory, and in between, there is storytelling. The dream of fabricating a humanoid being goes way back. In Jewish folklore, the golem was molded from mud, and speech-endowed stone statues appear in Greek myth. Long before medieval and Renaissance tinkerers fashioned various androides, that literally means human likenesses, Pneumatic and mechanical automata were imagined and sometimes even constructed in ancient cultures, including in Egypt, India, and China. Aristotle, in the politics, hypothesized animated fabrications as a technological substitute for slavery. If only an instrument could accomplish its own work, he said, like the statues of Daedalus or the tripods of Hephaestus. Plato's Socrates had earlier suggested that such animated mechanical marvels untethered were fitting metaphors for the insecurity and unreliability of opinion compared to knowledge. As technology progressed, our stories have adapted. In the 19th century, we got the corpse creature of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and the child puppet of Carlo Collodi's Pinocchio. 20th century electronics brought us robotics and cybernetics and a literature full of increasingly human-like marvels of engineering. Sensing danger, Isaac Asimov's science fiction also gave us the three laws of robotics in the 1940s. Philip K. Dick explored the challenges of life with androids in the 1960s and 70s, and the 70s and 80s brought us the lovable servant droids of Star Wars. Then, at the turn of the 21st century, a new genre of story emerged, again thanks to technological advances, but this time in empirical physiology rather than computational sophistication. In his 1996 essay, I'm Sorry But Your Soul Just Died, Tom Wolfe wrote, if I were a college student today, I don't think I could resist going into neuroscience. And soon after, Wolf began working on a novel in which the main character does just that. I Am Charlotte Simmons, published in 2004, was memorable for depicting decadent mores. But Wolf's real point was to imagine the psychological decay and the intellectual confusion of a young woman. The usual temptations of young adulthood were complicated by the apparent authority of neuroscience, and it proved a challenge for her to negotiate her choices as if they were the inevitable epiphenomena of purely physical activity. Around the same time, David Lodge published his novel, The Think, a satirical story in which a writer's love affair with cognitive, a cognitive scientist raises the question of whether their inner lives and intellectual professions can possibly be interpreted as the behavior of complicated machines. Where the earlier stories imagined building something new but very human-like, the new literature, inspired by increasingly sophisticated study of the human brain, imagined deconstructing human activities, including rational inquiry and love, into the functions of their bodily components. 
Lodge's novel had an acknowledgement section that read like an academic bibliography. It cited Wolf's essay, but also books by Chalmers, Searle, Dennett, Pinker, Dawkins, and others. The theorists and the storytellers were informing each other's work, but they were hurrying to catch up with the practitioners, whose trajectory seemed clear and inevitable. Between AI as the attempt to build human-like machines and neuroscience as the attempt to explain the mechanisms of cognition, the line between human and machine was being blurred. It was thrilling, exciting, but also a little bit scary to see the emergence of a new mythos in which we ourselves are characters about to transition into a transhumanist or post-human future. The vision was captured in the key phrases of Prophet Ray Kurzweil's book titles. We anticipated intelligent machines or even spiritual machines and it could only be a matter of time before we would build a mind, which is logically indistinguishable from thinking of ourselves as if we already are machines built, presumably by the long random physical processes of mindless evolution. And so, even if erasing the distinction between robot and human had been nobody's goal, the two projects of AI and neuroscience working from the bottom up and from the top down seem to be inexorably converging on that very accomplishment. Human beings are being reverse engineered. We are almost there. Or are we? I want to subject the technical advances and the stories they suggest to theoretical investigation. I intend to argue that we have reasons, empirically grounded, scientifically informed, principled, philosophical reasons, to believe that human beings will not be reverse engineered. That is to say, we will not build something genuinely intelligent in the way that human beings are intelligent, and we will not discover that human nature is the sort of thing that has been or can be fabricated out of or reproduced in terms of non-living components, no matter how complex. So I am answering the question, can human beings be reverse engineered, that I think is implicitly provoked by the artificial intelligence, neuroscience, techno, but what I need to do first is distinguish that question from the various questions that commonly arise and are explicitly acknowledged and included in the transhumanist project. That project raises deep moral and political questions, some of which seem very new, but they hide from us the question I am interested in, a question that was anticipated and answered by classical philosophers. In fact, I will argue that transhumanists would be surprised to learn what classical philosophers think about their project, and also that classical philosophers would be neither surprised nor threatened by any of the actual accomplishments of this modern technical project. The reason is that classical philosophers formulated answers to questions that we no longer ask, questions which have been displaced by a different set of questions which make the idea of reverse engineering human life seem plausible in a way that classical thinkers would never have found intelligible. It is up to us to evaluate these perspectives, but first we must understand them, and this requires some careful clarifications. So in the first main part of this talk, I will describe how our modern transhumanist techne has come to be accompanied by questions about consciousness and the relation of mind and body. In the second part, I will show how a representative of the classical tradition, St. Thomas Aquinas, 
implicitly addressed the possibility of fabricating human beings in terms of a different set of concepts, categories, and questions. Finally, in the third part, I will show that the questions St. Thomas asked and the answers he gave have not been rendered obsolete. And in fact, they have been confirmed by all past and any possible future advances in scientific knowledge or technology. So the first main section, the promise and problems of AI and neuroscience. The field of artificial intelligence is constantly developing, but let us assume that as of today, its key components include neural networks, parallel processing, machine learning, and deep learning. On the one hand, there is increased computational power, and on the other, increasingly layered and sophisticated architectures for channeling that power to replicate what appears to be intelligent behavior. What exactly counts as intelligence is contested, and it is usually described in terms that conveniently anthropomorphize practically feasible machine functions rather than define the nature of intelligence. Terms like learning, planning, solving, recognizing, deciding, judging. Notably left aside are other common human intellectual functions, such as discerning, intuiting, contemplating, meditating, praying. But at least in principle, the intelligence to be artificed would cover any sort of behavior or output that, when a human exhibits it, draws on human intelligence. AI has been remarkably successful when developed for tightly circumscribed tasks, playing chess, interpreting handwriting, steering cars, or nudging you to increased social media engagement, even composing paragraphs when given models and prompts. I've actually received papers plagiarized by AI already. They're good enough to try to get away with it. <laughs> this is sometimes described as narrow or weak artificial intelligence. The aspiration of many, however, and the source of some deep philosophical puzzles is artificial general intelligence, AGI, or strong AI. That is, the power of exhibiting self-directed, goal-oriented behavior that is successfully responsive across a, an unrestricted range of environments. As noted, AGI seems to be commonly conceived in terms of solving problems, and it is not clear that AI researchers are concerned with other functions we associate with human intelligence. It is one thing to have an algorithm to locate a book in a library, but what about the intellectual experience of browsing the shelves? It is one thing to grasp the rules of grammar, rhythm, and rhyme, but another to have an insight and develop it into a poem. The intelligence of a chess computer brute force calculating a probabilistically winning move, however impressive that accomplishment, just is not the creative, intuitive reflection of a chess master surveying the board. So AGI presents a definitional problem, what is included, and a technical problem, how can we get there? But setting those aside, the very possibility of AGI raises a further, more basic philosophical problem. Would AGI be conscious? Would it actually be thinking, as we understand that? Or would it merely be replicating or mimicking the external behavior of someone thinking? If we built a sufficiently brain-like machine, and it functioned in sufficiently brain-like ways, would something else, in addition to the machine, a consciousness, emerge? As the idea of not simply reconstructing a brain-like machine suggests, AI learns from neuroscience about possible strategies 
for the architecture and programming of its machines. And to be clear, by neuroscience here, I mean the empirical study of brain activity, which includes also interpreting the findings of that study, modeling brain activity, theorizing about the relationship between different kinds of brain activity, and doing all of this to attempt a kind of mapping of brain activity to cognitive functions. While medical practitioners and philosophers have long expected and theorized about physiological cognitive connections, modern neuroscience has revealed these connections in stunning ways. The most important tool here has been functional magnetic resonance imaging, fMRI, which detects neuronal activity indirectly by its correlated blood flow. The technique is only as old as the 1990s, but it was immediately recognized as revolutionary. Amol's essay came when the project was still young, only five years old. From brain imaging, we have learned much about neurons, how they behave, how they are organized, and how they develop. Among the findings of neuroscience are several that actually make the prospect of AGI as a computational issue seem more challenging than previously imagined. Not only is the brain a living organ with a capacity for growth and healing not available to silicon and wires, but we have learned about neuroplasticity, the ways that patterns of neuronal activity change and adapt. And it, we have learned that while neuronal activity does indeed have a digital or binary dimension, a synapse fires or it does not, it also has analog qualities. Synapses can be primed to fire and to different degrees. They coordinate their activity. They fire in dynamic patterns. We have learned how parts of the brain work together and even how other parts of the body contribute to our cognitive function. The more we learn about the brain, the more it seems inappropriate to model it as a piece of hardware. It seems more like an organism itself, or a city, or an ecosystem. In neuroscientific research, it is an assumption, more than a discovery, that brain activity and cognitive activity are correlated. We find different kinds of cognition, seeing versus hearing, remembering versus calculating, distributed in different areas of the brain, and different particular acts of cognition, like remembering one city versus another or recognizing one person's voice versus another, manifest as different patterns in those areas. The empirical fact of the correlation points to the philosophical question of what to make of it, a question that even before modern neuroscience was called the mind-body problem. Are mind and body two different things, and if so, how are they connected, and how do they influence each other? Does the influence go in only one direction, with the mind as an effect of the body, or the body responding to the activity of the mind? Are they ultimately the same thing, so that any body that exhibits a certain kind of activity can be said to also possess or be accompanied by a mind? While the technical projects of AI and neuroscience seem to converge, the theoretical questions do as well. And drawing on ideas from various fields, including psychology, sociobiology, and information theory, the empirical theoretical field of cognitive science takes up questions of metaphysics and the theory of mind. Assuming the physical construction of a machine that exhibited intelligence-seeming behavior, would it be conscious? And assuming that, in a sense, we already are such machines, what precisely is the relationship between consciousness and brains, between minds and bodies, in us? Even if consciousness is not itself identical with the bodily activity, we could still deconstruct it from brain activity and build a consciousness artificially, as long as consciousness is an emergent property 
that entirely depends on the physical structures out of which it emerges. In this sense, what I have called the transhumanist project, implied by the convergence of neuroscience and AI, tends to confirm and reinforce a metaphysical position that it assumes from the start, materialism. The human, that human intelligence is fully grounded in physical structures is a requirement if we are to reverse engineer it. To hypothesize that intelligence might be an immaterial or spiritual reality as somehow other than and not reducible to physical reality is, from this perspective, not only unscientific, but an insult to the AI neuroscience project. So in addition to the nature of consciousness question and the mind-body problem, there is another metaphysical question that is, for all intents and purposes, simply set aside. If we construct an intelligent machine, have we actually made intelligence or only simulated behavior associated with intelligence? Can we actually reverse engineer human intelligence? Or can we at best only model its observable effects? Can we actually reverse engineer human beings or only play at it? This question, the question that I am interested in, is generally not asked in the neuroscience AI project. It is rather avoided as moot, unnecessary in light of intensive focus on technical accomplishment. That is the point of the famous Turing test, which says that we are justified in treating something as intelligent if its behavior can fool a human being into thinking it is intelligent. The practical test intends to take any metaphysical question off the table. As befitting a technical project, the objective status of the model or simulacrum doesn't matter as much as its functional performance. If an android exhibits such behavior that it is as if, so far as we can detect, it is intelligent, what do we care whether it really is intelligent or not? How dare we suggest that it isn't intelligent? Does the distinction between being intelligent and simulating the effects of intelligence even matter? In this way, the Turing test gives a pass for the technical project to continue uncritically. The test allows some philosophical questions to be raised about the nature of consciousness and the relation of mind and body, yet without needing those questions to be answered in any particular way. But the Turing test tries to circumvent and disqualify the philosophical question that I am asking. Can material artifice, sufficiently complex, produce real intelligence? Is our rational nature, in principle, something that can be constructed in purely physical terms? Can we actually reverse engineer human beings? The transhumanist project implies this sort of question because practically it is committed to an answer, but it evades addressing it philosophically. We, however, don't have to be so avoidant, and we can turn for help to St. Thomas Aquinas. So the second main part of the paper, Aquinas on the nature of the rational animal. One of the advantages of studying the history of philosophy is that you see not only how different philosophers give different answers to philosophical questions, but you realize that they often ask different questions. Questions that initially seem basic and universal, questions that we may take for granted, can turn out to be historically contingent and in retrospect, somewhat contentious. In a way, the mind-body problem and the question about consciousness are such questions. They might seem timeless, but Aquinas, for instance, represents a tradition that was not really concerned with them. His tradition asked other questions, questions we might not even recognize as questions, 
and which might take some effort to be made intelligible. We will see that Aquinas can be interpreted as having something to say about the mind, body, and consciousness questions, but only incidentally. We will only understand his implicit answers to these questions if we make sense of what he took as the primary organizing questions that he explicitly addressed. These were questions about the constitution and origin of human nature. We can see the framework in which Aquinas treats metaphysical questions of intelligence and human nature from his treatment of the subject in the Summa Theologiae. He offers an account of human beings as rational creatures as part of his general discussion of creation in the Summa's first part. I will summarize here the first five questions of this so-called treatise on man, questions 75 to 79 of the Summa. And in order to highlight the trajectory of his teaching, I will consider these five questions in reverse order. In question 79, Aquinas addresses the distinctively human power of intellect. Over the question's 13 articles, he covers the nature of the intellectual power, different acts of reason, the intellect's relation to memory, will, and conscience. And only in incidentally would we say, is he addressing consciousness. Instead, he is talking about what we might call rational consciousness, but even so, he is only addressing it through different modes of rational cognition, which should not be confused. And intellectual powers are not the only modes of human cognition. Before considering the rational power itself, Aquinas had, in the previous question, 78, distinguished intellectual from other powers, such as sensation or imagination, which we share with other animals. All of these are modes of cognition, the intellectual and the interior and exterior sense powers we share with animals. And Aquinas considers them each as distinct. Their different objects distinguish their operations, which distinguish the powers. We might call these modes of consciousness, but Aquinas considers them powers of a single unifying principle, the soul. Thus, before considering these distinctive powers, Aquinas had asked in question 77, how it is that a unifying principle can have distinct powers, how those powers are related to each other, and the sense in which they are in or of the soul. And before considering that, in question 76, Aquinas had to inquire of the soul, that unifying principle of which mind, are, of which mind or modes of consciousness would be powers or functions. He had to ask of it about its relationship to the body. So even without considering how Aquinas answers these questions, we see from these organizing questions themselves that for him, there was not a general question, what is consciousness, but a set of questions about how to distinguish different modes of cognition. And there is not a general question of the relationship of mind to body, but at least two questions. One, how intellect as a particular kind of cognition is related to the soul. And two, how the soul is related to the body. The key concept that underpins this framework, but does not appear in the formulation of modern questions about AI and neuroscience, except as keenly interpreted by Tom Wolfe, is the soul. To your ears, it may sound strangely out of place, quaint and naive, and religious, of no relevance to scientific or philosophical inquiry. But it is important to grasp that the notion of soul here is a philosophical and even a scientific concept and one utterly uncontroversial in classical discussions of biology. Living things, as opposed to other things, 
must have something that sets them apart from non-living things. This principle is the soul, in Greek, psuche, in Latin, anima, that which animates or causes life. There is a difference between a living body and a corpse, so that subtracting it from the former, you get the latter. This difference has a name, the soul. With a merely religious notion of the soul, a spooky version of immortal selfhood, the main question might be, is there such a thing? But with Aquinas' classical philosophical conception of the soul, the main question is, what sort of thing is it? Is it part of the body? Is it located somewhere in the body? Is it the kind of thing that can exist apart from the body? Is it a specific arrangement of bodily components or some effect of bodily activity? In any case, such questions are not restricted to wondering about human life. They apply to all living things. Other animals have souls, as do plants. To the extent that some inorganic things seem to have a motion-producing power or intention, and so seem alive, it is even legitimate to suggest, as Thales did of magnets, that they have souls. In Plato's Phaedo, discussing the fate of Socrates after death, his friends don't ever question whether Socrates has a soul. They only argue about what sort of thing the soul is and how it is related to the body. Is it something that attaches to the body like a piece of clothing, but you could take it off? Is it something that the body produces like the harmony from a musical instrument? Only by pursuing these metaphysical questions can Socrates' friends know whether his soul is the sort of thing that could survive after his body has died. This completely uncontroversial notion of soul, according to which it is, a, it is trivially true that any living thing has a soul, is the notion that Aquinas inherited, along with the basic question about what sort of thing it is. And so, just as Socrates led his friends to do, Aquinas leads us, before asking about soul's relationship to the body, to consider the nature of the soul itself. So in question 75, Aquinas offers an account of the soul's nature, in six articles. First, is a soul a body? Aquinas explains that it is not itself a body, but it is the actuality of a body, making the body to be alive. We might compare it to the design of a house, giving structure to what would otherwise be only a multiplicity of bricks and wood, so that they take on the nature of a whole and unified structure. Or to the light of the glowing light bulb, which is not a component of the bulb, nor some additional matter added to the bulb, but something energizing or actualizing the bulb to be lit. In Articles 2 and 3, he asks, is the soul subsistent? That is, can it exist on its own? Aquinas explains that in general, animal souls are not subsistent, since their only operations, including sensation and imagination, depend on physical organs. But the human soul, he says, can exist apart from a body because its intellectual operation does not depend on physical organs. Aquinas gives one of several of his arguments for this conviction, adopted from Aristotle. Intellectual understanding is a power whose range of potential awareness includes any possible material determination, indicating that the power cannot itself be already actually determined in any material way. Sensation like taste or sight, requires a bodily organ, which, being limited by their physical determinations, can only receive a particular kind of determination. Eyes do not taste, and tongues do not see. 
and this only within a very limited range. But objects of intellectual understanding are not limited in this way, indicating that the potency of intellectual understanding has no physical determinations. Fourth, Aquinas asks, is the soul identical to the human being? No, he says, the human being is not a soul making use of a body, but a particular kind of animated body, and so a composite of soul and body. Soul is the formal principle actualizing the body, actualizing it to be, to be what it is, and to be alive. Fifth, does the soul have a physical composition? No, he says, it is the actualization of a body, but it is not itself a body, nor does it have component physical parts. Sixth, is it corruptible? The soul cannot decay, he says, since it has no parts. For other animals and plants, the soul's activity depends on the body, and so it cannot survive apart from it. The soul then doesn't so much decay as cease to exist. The human soul, however, insofar as it has a power whose activity is not the activity of any physical organ, can survive the death of the human body. Seventh, is an intellectual substance like an angel? As an intellectual substantial form, sorry, is the soul an intellectual substance like an angel? As an intellectual substantial form that can subsist apart from the body, the human soul is in a way like an angel, but it is obviously not an angelic nature, since each angel is its own species, and angels are not fit to be that whereby a body is actualized as an animal. I have briefly summarized Aquinas' own exposition, which is itself highly abbreviated. Here in the Summa, he has not conducted an inquiry into the nature of the soul. Rather, he has compressed into the seven articles of one question the main conclusions of such an inquiry, an inquiry actually carried out more extensively in other places. For instance, in Aquinas' commentary on Aristotle's De Anima, in his disputed questions on the soul, and in his treatise on the unity of the intellect. Why would a proper inquiry into the soul have to be so much more extensive? Knowledge of the soul is at once the most natural and the most difficult. It is philosophy's answer to the Socratic question, know thyself. On one level, we know our own souls by their very operation. Even more directly than the Cartesian syllogism, cogito ergo sum, the soul is aware of itself not as a consequence of its activity, but in and through its activity. While the Turing test takes advantage of the fact that other minds are not empirically detectable, of course, one's own mind is empirically detectable. Grasping the nature of the soul, however, is much more arduous and advanced than Descartes' argument that a thinking substance can be imagined apart from the body. Aquinas distinguishes these two ways of the intellect's knowing itself. First, the mind's very presence, he says, which is the principle of the act by which the mind perceives itself, is sufficient for the first type of cognition that is had of the mind. This is the case when, for instance, Socrates or Plato perceives himself to have an intellective soul in virtue of the fact that he perceives himself to have an understanding. So in this sense, the mind is said to have a cognition of itself through its own presence. But the mind's presence is not itself sufficient for the more general or universal, and you might say scientific or theoretical, knowledge of the intellect. 
by which we consider the nature of the human mind on the basis of the intellect's act. For this, Aquinas says, empirical observation or introspection is not enough. Instead, to gain a cognition of the soul's whatness and nature, what is required is diligent and subtle inquiry. Hence, many are ignorant of the nature of the soul, and many have fallen into error about the nature of the soul. Here, I will not lead you through such a careful and subtle investigation of the nature of the soul, but only distill the upshot of Thomas's Aristotelian account as it pertains to the modern challenges posed by the transhumanist project. I highlight three main teachings. First, the soul is a substantial form, a principle of physics, that is, of natural philosophy, including biology. So we have neither materialism, which would make the soul identical to the body or its physical functions, nor dualism, which would make the soul and body two distinct things that somehow interact. Instead, we have Aristotelian hylomorphism, according to which the living human being is one unified substance with a material or passive and formal actualizing principle. Second, as a substantial form, a soul would normally be expected to depend on the body, as is the case with animal and plant souls. Yet it is also the case that the body of the animal and plant depend on the soul to organize, unify, and vivify it as an organic body. One does not make a soul out of a body, but in a sense one can make some matter into a living body by communicating a soul to it. Life doesn't emerge from material principles then, except insofar as it is already in those material principles, as evident from the fact that the material principles themselves grow and heal, that is, they emerge on account of possessing a principle of life. Third, by its intellectual power, the human soul, as a principle of life, differs from other animal souls. The act of all other animal powers is a bodily act, but the act of the intellect is not the act of any bodily organ. The intellectual power is thus immaterial and can, in principle, survive apart from the body. This is only a sketch of a philosophical position, but on the basis of this sketch, we can see that for Aquinas, there are two reasons why the soul, in principle, cannot be reduced to physical parts, and why you could not construct an intellectual soul from physical parts. In other words, there are two Thomistic reasons why, in principle, we cannot reverse engineer human beings. First, souls in general cannot be made. Souls are natural principles of substance, really united, while artificial things only have accidental or incidental unity. Souls are not fabricated out of or composed from non-living things, but generated as a whole by living things already possessing a life principle which can be shared or passed on through the process of generation. Second, the intellectual power does not depend on any physical organ and can't even be fully grasped through empirical observation. As immaterial, it does not even depend on matter or any material process. So Aquinas argues on purely philosophical grounds that the soul can only be created not made from other things, nor can it be produced by any change in matter. While the modern consciousness question is not properly his question, Aquinas offers an implicit response. Cognition has different modes and must be carefully distinguished. Sensation, imagination, judging, and contemplating. All of them presume life and a unifying principle of life, the soul, 
which cannot be made, but can only be generated by another word. As a power of the soul, cognition is essentially natural. Artificial intelligence would be, for Aquinas, an oxymoron, or at the very best, a metaphor. Aquinas also offers an implicit response to the mind-body question. He doesn't exactly face a puzzle about how one type of thing interacts with another type of thing, since a soul and body are not two things, but two principles of one thing, the animal, unified by the very fact of the soul actualizing the body. That interaction is no more puzzling than the question of how any principle of actuality interacts with the corresponding principle of potency. Physical composites are unities, and the substantial form is itself the principle of the substantial unity, actualizing as one substance with a specific nature what would otherwise not be that substance. The modern perspective might at first seem most challenged by Aquinas's metaphysical confidence in the immateriality of intellectual activity, his conviction that the human soul can survive apart from the body that it naturally informs. That is why I have emphasized that Aquinas has philosophical reasons for this, based in Aristotelian natural philosophy. The real alien aspect of Aquinas' approach, what is hardest to understand from the modern perspective, is the framework in which this is developed, grounded on the concepts of matter and form. At the same time, Aquinas' account of the biological conception of the soul in terms of the philosophical notions of form and matter means that he would have no problem accommodating the findings of modern neuroscience and artificial intelligence research. He would, of course, disagree with the way neuroscience and AI often theorize what they are doing, but he can perfectly well accommodate their actual practice. His conception of the intellectual soul capable of existing apart from the body is in fact entirely consistent with and even predictive of all we have learned in empirical neuroscience about the physical events that accompany cognitive activity and about the influence of physical circumstances, including drugs and brain lesions, on cognitive activity. And Aquinas would no doubt marvel at, but would still be able to accommodate philosophically all the technical advances of so-called artificial intelligence. That is, physically, physical computational power manifesting some behavior with likeness to what, in humans, would indicate the presence of intellect. Aquinas' conception of the soul can allow that something could pass the Turing test. He would simply disagree that the test allows us to bypass the question of whether what seems intelligent really is. In principle, no discovery of neurological imaging and no achievement of artificial intelligence research could disprove Aquinas' Aristotelian account of intellect as immaterial. Is this because the Aristotelian account of intellect is not scientific by the principle that scientific theories must, in principle, be empirically falsifiable? No, but a theory of human nature belongs to a higher science than neuroscience. In fact, ruling out the Aristotelian hypothesis is the unscientific move, because rejecting it is arbitrary, not based on empirical evidence or argument, and it begs the question of materialism. What this shows is that the transhumanist project points to the need for rational investigation that is consistent with, but goes beyond empirical findings. It needs philosophy. Aquinas' account of the soul can only be evaluated on its own terms, that is, the actual arguments must be carefully evaluated, which means, first, that they must be understood. 
This is not a matter for any mechanical art or any laboratory experiment, but of speculation and reasoning, the subtle philosophical activity by which we, but no machine, could know human nature. Aristotle says that one of the acts of intellect that cannot be taught, and a sign of genius, is the ability to notice similarities between disparate things, making metaphors, finding analogies, seeing similes. Given the profound mystery that is the human being, our intelligence seeks analogies, and we sometimes compare ourselves to something lesser, a mechanism, a machine. As we make progress in building sophisticated machines, we in turn anthropomorphize them, attributing to them functions of a rational animal, learning, thinking, deciding, and otherwise lacking intelligence. For classical philosophers, almost as a kind of countermeasure, there was a tendency to err in the other direction. Anthropomorphizing God is a problem, but in some cases it is only a side effect of theomorphizing man, that is, understanding human beings as somehow godly. We are not gods, as Plato, Aristotle, and Aquinas knew. We are animals, awkward and messy, blessed with but also limited by our weak flesh and fragile bones, our valuable blood, and our tenuous nerves. We cannot be gods, but as both Plato and Aristotle said, given that our rational nature is like a divine spark, something godlike in us, we must strain every nerve to try. I began this talk by mentioning stories, and I will end with a story, and one that has at least some basis in historical fact. Automata, or mechanical robots, were known in the Middle Ages. The man from whom St. Thomas learned so much Aristotle, Albertus Magnus, Albert the Great, was a scientist as well as a philosopher, and he was also a tinkerer. Albert is said to have built an automaton. Supposedly developed over 30 years, it may have had a head of bronze and tubes containing mercury and rare stones whose settings were timed to align with astronomical events. By some kind of pneumatic action, it was said to be able to utter a sound, the greeting, Ave, or Hail. Alas, the robot did not survive. Legend has it that it was destroyed by a student. And at some point, apparently in the 15th century, that role was attributed specifically to Albert's most famous student, St. Thomas. According to the story, Thomas entered Albert's study, was surprised by the talking machine, and beat it to pieces. What is unclear in the legend is whether St. Thomas was supposed to have destroyed the automaton out of fear or out of piety. Was he threatened by the unknown or offended by the presumption? The former version is a more natural story. The latter sounds like misguided hagiography. In any case, we can be sure that St. Thomas, given time to reflect, would not be confused about the status of an android, no matter how articulate. One cannot build an intelligent being. But one can build something that emulates some of the external activity of an intelligent being. Human dignity being what it is, the recognition that by our rational nature, we participate in the divine life of God. One could find that emulating it too closely is offensive, perhaps even blasphemous. But human-like machines are only symbolically dangerous. They cannot diminish God, nor can they pose any actual threat to the metaphysically unique 
and specially created reality that is our rational human nature. 